Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is generally Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and even some other ones and decide whether to keep them or kick them from their Oscar pedestals. <laughs> this year, <laughs> this week, oh, this is turning out to be terrible. This well, show is one take. Just one take. This is proof. We don't redo it. <laughs> <laughs> We're locking ourselves away at a seaside retreat to, instead of Best Picture, talk about another movie from the sight and sound poll of the greatest films of all time and also maybe spiral downward into an existential crisis and, I don't know, lose our sense of identity along the way who I knows mean, we talk about existential crises regularly off the air we really really do it's kind of sad but <laughs> it's, it's frequent how, how old are you 36 36 so you have at least 10 more years worth of midlife crises ahead i'm kind of never really ends. i'm huh? nearing the end of i think my midlife crisis and then you just kind of go right into like what like the later life the winding crisis. down I've, I've heard your 50s you know you're feeling like pretty settled in your you're, com really? you're comfortable that you're, you know, you're huh. on the decline. I don't think I'll no ever one. be comfortable. <laughs> I'll have a golden years crisis. <laughs> I'll have a deathbed crisis. It's never going to stop for me. I could definitely see the death deathbed crisis. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, oh, our movie today. Persona. Is Persona, Sorry. directed by Igmar Bergman. I interrupted you. Yes. Um, Persona was made in 1966, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring B.B. Anderson and Liv Ullman. Uh, this movie is a tight 84. Love it. Not even a tight 90. The box office made a cool 250,000. So not really too successful. Um, the plot. All right. This is going to be, this is straight out of Wikipedia. Here okay. you go. Let's see if you can improve on this. The story revolves around a young nurse named Alma, who's played by B.B. Anderson, mm -hmm. and her patient, who is a well-known stage actress, Elizabeth Vogler, mm -hmm. played by Ullman, Liv Ullman. Liv Ullman, who has suddenly stopped speaking. They move to a cottage where Alma cares for Elizabeth. She confides in her and begins to have trouble distinguishing herself from her patient. So it's pretty simple. I think we can pretty much end the podcast there. You know, I think we know what it's all, what it all means, what it's all about. Yeah, it's a straightforward movie for sure. Um, there is a lot of trickery in this movie with uh, the the shooting, the 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 shots. That is um, the cinematography, literally smoke and a mirror, really used to frame the one shot that we were just looking at just before of mm -hmm. the two faces sort of blending into each other weirdly. Um, smoke and mirror were used. The mo the title comes from the Latin word that's used for masks in ancient drama. So that certainly plays into it. Carl Jung's theory on persona plays in. There's been millions and millions, literally, well, maybe not literally, of um, critiques and academic, you know, papers and theses, treatises, edicts. manifestos. Um, so coming up in the show, we will ask each other a few questions and then we'll end the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is going great. Okay, so the opening sequence is... This was about... This was my first question, too. Okay, oh, go this ahead. This is going to be great, then. Yeah. It's a full-on nightmare with seemingly random, surreal images cut together. Some of them funny? Uh, I guess, depending Goofy. on your... Yeah, I guess. The skeleton, uh, kind of cheesy Halloween skeleton costume. Sure. Um, it sort of is reminiscent of The Ring, the, the VHS in the ring mm -hmm. where these images are kind of put cut together in a way that seems kind of random but is unsettling we see things like um 
film spinning through a projector, a spider, a hand being crucified, and then, you know, like that guy in the F- skeleton costume running around. So the second time I, I, I've been watching this the second time to try to understand a little bit better and just because I liked it, but mm-hmm. I, I was like, I wonder why they had this upside down the whole time. You know, is that thing Mar Bergman going going crazy? And then I realized I had my phone turned upside down. <laughs> so that kind of added to the mystique. Yeah, it's really experimental. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's not upside down, but it does command attention. When I was watching this opening sequence, I don't think I moved the yeah. whole time. I was kind of, <laughs> what is happening? You know, there's no opening credits. It just starts with these images. And the score plays a, a big role in a lot of that really classic horror stuff with like the howling strings and mm-hmm. water dripping. So it's really disorienting. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, did it prime you like it did me in kind of making you feel unsettled and anxious before you even kind of know what this movie is about? Or did you find it a little film schooly, a little much, soothing. a little pretentious maybe? Yeah, I mean, the it's like... You sort of get the feeling like Ingmar Bergman is saying, let's put in every possible random thing in here and, and see if it makes sense to somebody. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like when you're writing a paper in like sixth grade and it kind of starts to sound like a good paper. And you're not even really sure what it meant that you just wrote, but you're like, maybe the teacher will understand it. Yeah, and you turn it in anyway. Uh, but yeah, I was, I, I liked it. I was into it. I, I'm, you know, you know, it's hard again to separate like the mythology of this movie. It's like so famous. It's number nine on the director's poll tied with In the Mood for Love, by the way, which we're doing next. Um, and Ingmar Bergman is kind of one of those like mythical names in movie making that influenced everybody afterward. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of I'm not going into it thinking like I'm going to poke holes and prove why this movie actually is terrible and why Ingmar Bergman <laughs> yeah, is yeah. is not good. Um, but yeah, I was like you, I was pretty riveted. I was interested to see where this is all going. Now, were you interested in kind of putting logic into these images and trying to figure out the meaning and the metaphor? Because I, I watch something like this and I'm not thinking in those terms. I'm just kind of trying to absorb it on an emotional level and, and, and get on its wavelength rather than trying to figure out what it means. I think that it's trying to like jolt you into feeling something yeah, and it's happening too fast. You can't really process it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all these different, these things. I mean, it goes from a, a, a spider and, you know, a lamb's head being drained of blood yeah, um, to like a crucifixion. You know, you ha- it's like close up of nails being driven into a wrist. Um, and so there's a critic named Jeff Pavir or Paviri. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. But he called this prologue, quote, one of the most audacious reset clicks in movie history, unquote. Mm. Definitely audacious. Yeah, um, yeah. I can definitely see that. And I think that it sets up a lot of what the ambition of this movie is, which mm-hmm. is so mood driven. You know, yeah. we get that sense of dread immediately. And then we have this feeling of impending doom throughout the rest like it carries through you know especially for a movie that is 85 minutes you can mm-hmm. carry a tone and a mood through that whole way yeah and kind of right when the traditional story starts when we're when we have this nurse and we have this patient and they go away and then they're kind of just existing together and not talking to one another because one of them is not speaking but you know interacting with each other it feels on the one hand if the movie would have just started like that it would feel like a totally different movie, right? It would just feel like, you know, these are just two women existing and where are we going to go with this? But instead it's like, 
when is the breakdown going to happen? And you're waiting for it and it comes. Yeah. So the movie, um, I mean, I, I don't know if I can't remember now what the, yeah, it says that we know that Elizabeth Vogler, this actress, she was on the stage and she was, she just like was silent for one minute on the stage. And then ever since then she hasn't spoken. And you kind of, as the movie progresses, you learn that she has a really complicated relationship with her son and about motherhood. And, um, you know, I think that's where when, when I think it makes more sense watching it the second time, because then there's this boy lying on a table and he's like reaching up to these like foggy images of one first, mm-hmm. I think it's the nurse and then it's the, the Elizabeth Vogler and then it's back to the nurse Alma and it's kind of a, a blurry, blown up yeah. vision of a face. Yeah. And he's putting his hand up to it. It's kind of like she is through a screen and Something kind of like unreachable, that. but he's kind of grasping for her. One of the movies, just one of the movies, amazing images that we Ab- get of, throughout. Yeah, definitely. Almost every shot is like you could put a still and put it up uh-huh. in a museum. Sort of like what I was, you know, suggesting with like, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey or even what we just watched Tokyo Story. There's a lot of really great images like this, but. This one takes it to another level with like the strangeness of it all, I think. Yeah. But but once you once you realize, okay, this is a boy, he's reaching up for these women. Um, and then as you learn more about Elizabeth and her own relationship with her son, um, at one point she tears a picture of him in half, you know, and um, there's, a, there's some kind of intense scenes where they're t- talking about this or Alma's talking to Elizabeth about it. Um, but... Then rewatching the beginning and you realize this could be her son, um, that seems to make a little bit more sense to me. Still not all sense, but or at least it seems it, a hint at that that maybe that is her son that that's on this table. Yeah, or at least a symbol of her of yeah, her son. You exactly. know, because is he literally in some morgue somewhere? I mean, I don't know, but it's, yeah. What I think is sort of so important about that beginning is it does set up the possibility that everything that we're seeing after it might not be real. This might be a dream. This might be a fantasy. It's it's some kind of surreal spiral. And in that way, very, very Mulholland Drive. You know, mm-hmm. this is like a pre-David Lynch dream space yeah. for the rest of the runtime. Yeah. Actually, I mean, that's one of the reasons that that's one of the... I mean, it's been interpreted a lot of times, but... I wasn't really, I'm not super convinced. I don't know. What am I trying to say here? Um, I mean, I thought of like the sixth sense, you know, some people would love the the sort of almost trick ending or the surprise ending that actually, you know, this person was dead all along. Sorry if you haven't seen that. Go back to our 99 episode on sixth sense. But it's sort of like a, you know, was everything you just watched real or was it all sort of invented? I don't really love the idea of, you know, trying to make us think that none of this stuff was real because I don't know. I feel like it, it, I don't really get what the point of doing that would be like going to such level, such detail to make sure that you do, you are convinced that there are two different people sitting there. Mm -hmm. I'm not really, I don't really think that they are one person. I don't know. What, what did you, I how think, did you kind of come down? I think the down movie on? is sort of about 
merging. You know, it is a, sort of about where does identity start and end, and, yeah. and can these two merge? And I think that there is a moment in this movie where they sort of do. Whether that is literal or not, I, yeah. I could care. I don't, I don't care at all. Yeah. You know, whether or not that is just one person in a beach house or if it is really both. All I know is that that intro sets off that things might not be real. They, this might be a nightmare. This might yeah. not. This might be a fantasy all occurring in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of all I need to know that the rules here are not the wor- the rules that we live by in the real world. Yeah. And that that sets up, you know, the the devolution that we see from that point on. Mm-hmm. So literal, don't know, but subconscious, intuitive, emotional, yes. Yeah, there's definitely that's definitely his like that's kind of like his stated um goals here. I'm going to skip ahead to a uh, um another s- couple different quotes that I had, but um, Ingmar Bergman said about the movie that um, he, he had a lot of freedom to work with this movie. And so he said, when working that way, quote, I touched wordless secrets that only the cinema can discover, unquote. Mm. And I think that's sort of what he's doing at the beginning. I mean, part of this is kind of about the power of cinema. Like, why would in the middle of your, why would at the beginning of your movie, you have a film reel moving? Yes. You know, th- it also tells you that this is kind of about filmmaking. Yeah. It's about an actress. Yep. You know, there's a lot of fourth wall being broken. You know, a lot of act, a lot of people looking right at you, even the boy at the very, very beginning, he's reaching out seemingly to you, you know, his hand reaching out. And, um, all, I think both, both the actresses look directly at the camera at different times. And so there's kind of this question and then there's kind of this surprise in the middle of the movie that maybe Elizabeth Vogler has been kind of, you know, just observing Alma, the nurse, um, and is kind of maybe she's like doing character research for her own acting. And then mm-hmm. once you see that as a theme, there's a lot of different ideas about like a story. You know, they're reading a, a letter. There, there's a lot of discussion. Like, like even her, her, you know, Alma tells a story about her, you know, orgy experience on the beach. It's all stated. You know, it's read basically as opposed to like dramatically re-envisioned. And so it kind of like all that stuff seems to be swirling around this concept of what's the power of film and and acting and art. Yeah. And in that way, there's a key monologue in this movie that is repeated twice from two different points of view. And so (laughs) just hammering home that kind of um, that theme of performance, you know, that where does where does what we're projecting into the world match what we feel and what we are internally and yeah. can those two things ever align and be totally true and in that way i think bergman is is uh confronting his own relationship with art you mm-hmm. know there's a lot of sort of um adoration mixed with contempt in this movie you know on the one hand there's this famous actress and the nurse who's you know in medicine a very logical field is enamored by this actress who's you know liberal arts that's like left brain light, right brain thing mm-hmm. going on here and she's very uh impressed but then as the movie goes on there's kind of a stark tonal shift that happens and then all of a sudden she's very angry at this at this character and i think that we're kind of trying to i don't know wrestle with that thing about art that is fake that we're trying to tap into our innermost longings and desires and put something true out into the world. But no matter how close we get to emotional truth or literal truth, there's, it's always going to be a little bit phony, right? Cause we're, we're making, it's all make-believe. Yeah. 
the the doctor at the very beginning when she is giving Alma her assignment, you know, go and live in this beach house with Elizabeth Vogler and try to treat her there because it's not working in the hospital. She, she, and I didn't remember this, you know, except looking back now you see like, okay, he's, Ingmar Bergman is basically telling us a lot about the movie that's about to happen. The doctor is telling her, um, she, 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 she tells, um, Elizabeth Vogler, I respect your, I hope I'm remembering this right. (laughs) I respect what you're doing, not speaking. You know, it's basically a choice. It's like, in a way, it's like this faked illness, um, Mm -hmm. in a way, but she, she's, she's saying you're choosing to be, remain silent, meaning that you're taking out any question of whether it's, you know, your emotion is real or if it's pretend because you're an actress. And, and, um, I think that's pretty, pretty interesting concept. So another theory that some people have had is that persona, um, this character kind of represents God because God doesn't speak to you, you know? And so there's kind of like a nihilism, Nietzsche kind of, uh, theme that's being explored for sure. Um, so anyway, we're kind of all over the place. That's pretty reflective of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) with how many different themes kind of seem to be bouncing off each other. Yeah. So we're already kind of talking about movies, about movies. That, yeah. that was where I was going to go next with this. Last week, we talked about that with Eight and a Half. Yeah. I think this movie, even maybe to a, to a greater extent, does that, that sort of same thing. I think we're in that same ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, do you see this movie more as Bergman exploring uh, identity? Or do you, do you see the ex- exploration of art and creativity where that need comes from the authenticity versus the phoniness as the real like thesis here. Is there a thesis here? I think that it's less, it's not directly about movie making or anything. I mean, eight and a half clearly was Mm -hmm. this, I think is more about those are kind of, you know, they happen to be good metaphors for what he's doing, but I think, yeah, it's kind of talking about what, yeah, what identity means and how, um, I, I also see it as like this really interesting relationship about listening and speaking. I mean, it's very basic, maybe yeah. overly simplistic, but I, I think the times when I felt the most emotionally engaged were when Alma is, she's just been bearing her soul for days on end yep. doing, and she just says, no one has ever listened to me like this before. Mm-hmm. that's when I felt the most emotion in the movie probably is this kind of like, that's such a basic human need to be listened to. Um, I don't know if any other animal in the animal kingdom cares about that, but we do as human beings. And um, the fact that they're kind of shut up together in this, in this beach house, um, it was actually a really kind of liberating experience for Alma in, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It- but it also kind of speaks to our instinct to project because just because she's not speaking doesn't mean that they're having a real connection or that she cares about what Alma is saying. But because she isn't saying anything, Alma can convince herself that they're having a very intimate relationship and she understands me. She's listening to everything I'm saying and she's just accepting it when really she's just not speaking. No matter what you were saying, she wasn't going to be speaking. And there are, there's the time later on when she is really angry and Elizabeth Vogler is, is laughing Mm -hmm. and you can't tell she's really laughing at her or she just, it's kind of awkward and she's kind of laughing to kind of ease the tension. But regardless, 
she doesn't explain it. And the laughter is interpreted, you know, as a, that she's being laughed at. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that, um, the, the relationship between the two is pretty fascinating and is probably to me more interesting than the question of whether she kind of literally becomes another person or maybe Elizabeth Vogler, like may never existed in, in real life. I think those are worthwhile to consider. And I think if mm -hmm. you don't, then, um, I, I mean, the, the reality of the world in, in which the movie lives, I think has to be considered to kind of learn what, what Ingmar Bergman is trying to say here. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, it, it's their logistics. And at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter how we get from point A to point B. All that really matters is along the way, how you feel when you're watching this movie and what mm -hmm. it makes you think about. So if you think that you cracked it, congratulations, <laughs> but there's no prize to that. You know, I mean, you could, you could, you could argue that on the simplest level, um, these two women go to a beach house, one's a nurse, one's an actress, and the nurse is a closeted lesbian. And being there with uh, Elizabeth it sparks something in her that she can't bury. And just being just being there in that face in that place and having to confront things that normally she would hide leads to this sort of breakdown. Mm -hmm. And earlier in the movie, we see that there's already this push and pull between like logic and and uh, emotion, you know, rational versus irrational. We're almost going to sleep and she's saying something like, ah, it's so great to know exactly what I'm going to be doing tomorrow and the day after and for the rest of my life. I'm going to marry this guy who, I don't know, maybe I love. I don't remember exactly what her quote is. Yeah. But she's basically like trying to reinforce to herself that everything is fine. She's telling herself a story. Yeah, she's telling herself a story and having no spontaneity in my life or surprise is actually a good thing. It's safety. It's safety, yeah. And being at this beach house it kind of forces her to confront other questions that normally she would be able to hide if she keeps herself busy at the hospital and along her normal routine. Mm -hmm. So, so Imar Bergman said about this movie at some time or other, I said, persona saved my life. That is no exaggeration. If I had not found the strength to make that film, I would probably have been all washed up. One significant point. For the first time, I did not care in the least whether the result would be a commercial success. Um, he also said that he hoped the film would be felt rather than understood. Oh, yes, I love that. It seems like <laughs> the, the only issue I have there is like, is there some like, okay, hold on a second, guys. We're making this movie. It's starting to make too much sense. We need to screw it up a little bit so that it's more felt than understood. Some, when you say about the pretension at the beginning, like uh -huh. I can see how that, you know, that can be taken a little too far, I would say. If it's just purely like intuition. And now let's have a let's have an elephant walk by in the background. You know, like, well, why? What's the point of that? There's at least think about what the point could be interpreted yeah. as. I mean, an, an avant-garde film could always go too far. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when you alienate people. And, yep. and you know, I'm, I'm a huge David Lynch fan, but I think that there are definitely moments in some of his movies and movies as a whole that do that and that I can't fully connect to. Yeah. Um, but the pursuit of that, I think, is right because yeah. we're using this medium in a way to to capture something that no other art can capture. And by just making me feel something weird... In the first, what? What's that opening? Two minutes? Yeah, something like that. That carries over through the rest and makes me feel like 
I don't know what is going on, but I know that it's not right. Even when it seems like everything is sweet and nice, it's off and something is going to is going to collapse. And then we see the film stock burn up in the middle of the movie. Yeah. And it's kind of like right when you're able to settle back into the traditional narrative that happens and it kicks you out of it again. So you're always kind of jockeying between, okay, I know where I am and I understand this place and oh wait, I'm on the outside again and I'm trying to, to figure it all out. Do you think that if Ingmar Bergman had seen, had been looking over my shoulder mm-hmm. with my phone upside down, he would say, yes, keep it up, keep it upside down the whole time. Let's watch it like this and see. I think if there were a few frames here that were upside down, it would be fine. But extended periods of time, that's when I would be out. Ingmar Bergman told the actresses, don't ask what the scene means. Just do the scene. Um, the Liv Ullman said that the cinematographer, who's Sven Nykvist, um, was not told of the director's intentions. Just like hmm. work intuitively. Although I still wonder like how much Bergman was develop- was composing the scene versus the cinematographer. It's always a probably mm-hmm. a combination. Um, so let's go back to this faked illness idea. So mm-hmm. she, she stops speaking. The doctor says that it's just willpower rather than physical and mental illness. So are we, you know, the doctor sort of admires it in a way. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Greg Kinnear telling Paul Dano, I admire. He's got. He's he's taken a vow of silence. I admire. It. That's willpower. That's part of the. That's part of the twelve steps or whatever. Nine mm-hmm. steps. Nine steps. In Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. Um. I just wondered, Mike. You know, have you ever faked an illness for an extended <laughs> period of time? It seems like something you might do. I just wondered. It, it's something I would do for <laughs> sure, but I don't think I've ever taken a vow of silence. So I'm wondering, is this? Do you put this on the same family tree as Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You know, with the with, with the with the fever because of the fake illness. Yeah, the fake illness so just at the beginning. The the, the subgenre here yeah. is movies. Where movies with fake illness. Maybe sick. Persona is the trunk, and Ferris Bueller now comes off it. Well, then of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. if if that is the criterion for this subgenre, <laughs> then of course. Um, what one play? One other thing I read was that because of this kind of dual perso- perso- persona mm-hmm. um, situation. Um, they're they're saying that Mulholland Drive is kind of one of them with the two oh, yeah. the two actresses, um, and then they also lumped in Fight Club into that, um, yeah. and then Black Swan, for sure. So yeah. I think anyway, this concept is um, obviously inspired others as well. Yes, these are movies I love. I don't know that Bergman which, necessarily invented the idea of two people having a you know. No, he definitely didn't, but. Lynch 100% was influenced by this movie yeah. making Mulholland Drive. And, and in the same way as as Persona and Mulholland Drive are doing the same thing, where when the characters reach kind of the apex of their intimacy, that's when they kind of merge and the whole thing falls apart. It's, mm-hmm. it's like the reality that they're in when everything is sweet and they're just, you know, existing together in the beach house. Um, it, it's almost like that reaches the end of the line and it can't carry the weight of of that reality anymore it snaps and then things start to turn more into a nightmare the arc is exactly the same yeah in both movies so is there an attempt to represent something that is real 
or is the real being completely disregarded? Like is, is Mulholland drive and persona? Is it like, okay, adoration of another person Mm -hmm. blending into you lose your own identity and you sort of, you know, become that person. So is that, is that a concept that Bergman is trying to explore and using these as like, you know, representations of those ideas or is that reality completely thrown out the window and all we're doing is, is just making you feel, it seems like you're kind of suggesting that's the second, I mean, Bergman himself basically says that, I guess, but yeah, I I think that the movie runs on intuition, Mm -hmm. but I do think that it could be both, you know, it could also be that we're, that we're dealing with, with, with real issues and with, with real people, but doing it in a way that doesn't make real sense. If that if that makes sense, you know, I think <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. You could look at it in terms of, OK, so the persona um, in Jungian uh, psychology mm-hmm. means the outer character that we show the world, basically, and the anima is the true inner self or the feminine side of a man's psychology. And they say that the persona and the anima switch roles and merge in slow, smooth ways. I looked that up beforehand. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not pulling that out of my brain. Um, but it totally confirms what we're talking about here, that those two, that those two sides of the self are kind of interchangeable in a way and at odds at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can look at Elizabeth as the outside layer. You know, she's the thing that we're showing the world. She's the actress. She is a facade. You know, she is, she's putting on a character. And then um, Alma is the one who's sharing all of her longings and she's she's bearing the soul and she's telling all of her secrets. She's the thing that we try to hide. So, I mean, those things can coexist for a while like they do in the first half here, but they can't exist at the same time, you know? So that's when, that's when I think the snap happens. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, we resent the facade because it's not real, even though we need it as like a defense mechanism. Well, they both seem to struggle with who's the real version of, of themselves. Like mm-hmm. Alma is telling, you know, about her past, her secret about, you know, having this abortion and that's still kind of traumatic for her. Um, Elizabeth is, um, you know, her relationship with her son, she seems to like hate her son, resents him for, um, you know, disrupting her career, which something to that effect. But then there's like these, what about this, these, uh, horrific images like Elizabeth watches on TV in the hospital before they go to the the seaside manor. Mm Mm-hmm. She's watching on TV this film clip of a monk being burned alive at the very beginning. It's like this Vietnam, tra- you know, thing. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And then later on, she's looking at this picture, which I, what I read is that it's a Holocaust image. You know, it's this little boy who is, you know, there's a soldier with a gun behind him. And you just see these zoomed in shots of all the faces that are in this black and white picture. Some of them are blurry, but they still do a close up on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like Elizabeth seems kind of horrified by it. And yet and she like puts her hand over her mouth and she's especially with the first one in the hospital with this burning monk in the, in the, in the street. And then yet when Alma is angry and she's like falling apart, she starts to laugh and like, who is the real Elizabeth, Elizabeth, you know, she's, she can feel that for these far off, you know, historical kind of images. Hmm. Um, 
but yet she has a hard time feeling any sympathy really for, for Alma, even though Alma seems to assume that Elizabeth is feeling very sympathetic uh, for all this time. Like, I've never had someone listen to me like this. So, like, it's hard to kind of figure out who Elizabeth is. You know, what is her, is, is, are we thinking that because she's now silent that that's the real her? You know, she's no longer putting on a facade? No, no. I, I would say the she's still her being there. silent is 100% a facade. I mean, the, the doctor that you're talking about who uh, yeah. sort of admires her, I think that part of it is admiration, but the other part of it is just saying, I see through you. I know what you're doing. This yeah. is not real. You're putting on another character just like your entire life you put on characters on mm -hmm. stage and on film and whatever else. Kind of like, do you even know who you are? I don't think that you do. So maybe this this period of silence, um, it could be a character that she's playing or it could also be, at the same time, her trying to figure out who she is. And Alma is kind of a part of that somehow. And Alma is... Like, it could be that the reality, if, you know, if we're trying to figure out who's the reality, Elizabeth is the real person and Alma is sort of the, um, is the, uh, um, the, the sort of the stand-in that helps Elizabeth to confront who she really is as a person. Or it could be the other way around. Yeah, I mean... And that's why it's endlessly debatable and why all these books are written about it. But. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of all of them at once. I think that, that they are two distinct people, <laughs> but I also think that they are each other. And, you know, like I said earlier, I, I, don't, I don't care who is real or who literally does, so does what for what reason. Elizabeth's <laughs> husband comes to the seaside home. Yeah. And apparently makes love with Alma as the one who's lying next to him in the bed afterward. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth is looking at the camera, you know, yeah. super close up. Um, does he care who he made love with? <laughs> well, yeah, but there's we're not, some we're not reality. seeing his perspective. I know, but there's we're some seeing... reality for him. Yeah. There, so what is irrelevant. the reality? It's irrelevant, though, because... It, well, it's not because I just asked the question, <laughs> so therefore it's relevant. <laughs> it's irrelevant to Alma slash Elizabeth, because the movie is through one of or both of their perspectives. Yeah. And when we're seeing him talk to Alma and Elizabeth's face is very close up to the camera and she's kind of looking right down the barrel of the lens, for all we know, that could be her remembering... Yeah that interaction and putting Alma in her own place in that memory. When, when the husband first arrives, he's, it, you're like, it seems like he maybe sees Alma and mistakes her for Elizabeth. They have, they've been apart for several months. Maybe he maybe paid that much attention <laughs> to his wife, but you sort of, okay, well maybe he got him a little confused. They look, they, they do look similar, although not that close. And then she continues having this conversation and Elizabeth walks out and is standing very close to Alma. And it seems that the husband just never acknowledges that she's standing there. Yeah. You would think that in a, in a, in a normal world, he would say, oh, there's Elizabeth. I don't know who you are, but, you know, hi, Elizabeth, you're my real wife. I don't think at any point he confused a different woman for his wife. So if that's the case, mm -hmm. then I think that's evidence that... Ingmar Bergman is trying to make them one person. Yeah. To show yeah. that they're one person. I mean, even person. during that sequence, we see Alma 
while the husband is talking to her and kind of, I think, telling her how much he loves her, Alma is not looking at him. She's looking at Elizabeth, who's looking at us. And Alma's giving her this eye, like, basically, like, I'm in charge now. You know, like, like I am with your husband. And so if you see them as the same person, it's almost like the two roles that live inside of them, usually uh, Elizabeth is the one who's in charge. But because of that break that happens halfway through, then Alma is the one with the power. And now she's basically saying, now you're the one who's hidden while I'm the, I'm, I'm the facade. I'm the one who's out in the world. And now you're the anima and I'm the persona. I want this movie to be felt <laughs> rather than understood. Mm -hmm. um, some people would feel sort of resentful to watching even just a tight 84 for a movie from a filmmaker that says, I don't want you to understand this movie. I guess Ingmar Bergman's not for everybody. And Ingmar Bergman's okay with that. He's trying to make art. Um, it certainly makes a, an impact on me when I'm watching it. I love the visuals. Can't get enough of the visuals. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't say that I didn't understand. I would say that I understood this movie more than I understood Eight and a Half. <laughs> Even though... <sighs> but, but the reality of it, you know, you're willing to say, I don't get that and I'm okay with it. But who's who... And are they physically in the same room or are they not? Um, that seems to be purposely made ambiguous. Yes. Right? But, but while I'm watching each scene, I'm not thinking about that. I'm not saying, wait, 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 hold on a second. What about who when the husband who? arrives and he's confusing one person for the other and then they walk out, they're, they're standing next to each other and he still doesn't really respond in the way that a normal person would. Everything else... Most of the for most of the movie, besides Elizabeth, who's not speaking, we don't get why exactly. But Alma seems to be fairly understandable. Maybe she's she's yeah. she's kind of kind bearing of, her, kind she's of. kind of bearing her soul. Uh -huh. She seems to be having some simple pleasures of just like keeping house with this friend that she now has. Maybe there's some you know lesbian attraction that seems to be going on. That seems to be certainly an undertone. Yeah, um, but. Um, I, I guess I kind of understand, like when she finds the letter, you know, and she's confused by it and maybe hurt by it, you can understand those emotions that she's having. And I, I'm, I'm there with her. Like, I believe the emotions that I'm seeing the actress portray. Mm -hmm. And then there's other scenes where it seems to be very irrational, like with, like with the husband, the husband is maybe making love with the wrong woman, doesn't realize it or... Again, That's something that we don't understand. I think Ingmar Bergman is saying that is something that I'm not going to make clear for you in this movie. Yeah. Right. And at that point, the roles are already mixed up and we're kind of going back and forth. When the film stock burns, yeah. it's like everything that happened before that in the cottage, we now realize was a, was some sort of manufactured thing. And whether or not we can ever get back there, I, I don't know if we're supposed to know. But from that point on... I think that we are supposed to accept that 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 it's fluid between these two women, yeah. and maybe everything that happened before that was quote unquote real, mm -hmm. and then they left the cottage afterward, and you know now we're just kind of seeing the subconscious um, imagery or dreams or whatever, um, or maybe we're not. I don't know, but all I know is that 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 moment in the movie is a signal to us that everything that happens after it is different than what we saw before. Yeah. And then I, once that happens, I'm okay. Uh, I, I understand that emotionally enough mm -hmm. to where um, 
it's kind of like a it's a it's a big enough sign you know he's holding up a sign saying things have changed yeah and once he does that i take his word for it and i i just kind of vibe with it mm-hmm. yeah i i don't i i don't disagree um I, i'm being a little bit of a literalist here <laughs> are there two people are there not seems to be a very basic question one movie that i think that does this well and i know i at one point you called this minor scorsese but Which shutter island oh yeah um, I've only seen it once. I like I like Shutter Island quite a bit. I liked it too. I like I like Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, getting angry that you know he could do that in every movie. I like it. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, like the the sort of once the rug is pulled out, you know, I think it's a lot of people like me are going to then go back and say, okay, what clues did they seem to leave that made this whole reality work? The Sixth Sense, you can do that. I think Shutter Island, you can do that. Fight Club, you can do that. This, I don't think you can. Those movies are not existing in a dream space, though. And yeah. this one 100% is. Yeah. Where it's dealing with subconscious Again, desires and fears. And and it's and it's set up it's like a set horror up because movie, because of the too. prologue, yeah. It's set up because of that prologue. And because there are times in this movie where if you closed your eyes and just listened to the score or the sound design, you would think that you were watching like a monster movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, but those those effects are there for a reason and it's to tell us that like this is not a drama you know it's not uh interiors it's the first one that comes to mind because it's like woody allen trying to do a, a bergman <laughs> i have not seen interiors <laughs> it's women talking by the beach but it's doesn't have any you know surrealism or yeah. or horror elements um a couple other just factoids about the movie. Ingmar Bergman wrote this in nine weeks while in the hospital recovering from pneumonia. That makes me furious. <laughs> <sighs> hey, if you had nothing to do for nine weeks and someone gave you a script software like Bergman had at that time, you could do it. <laughs> script software. Like that's my one missing piece. It is. I just is. need the right software and then I could write something great. Um, so a, one professor, Thomas... L. L. Sasser, he said that this film has been for film critics and scholars what climbing Everest is for mountaineers, the ultimate professional challenge. Mm. Besides Citizen Kane, it is probably the most written about film in the canon. Wow. Okay. And we're talking about it after one viewing. Yeah. So I'm well, sure one and two thirds for me. <laughs> Not for me. So after uh, after one viewing, I'm sure everything that we're saying is. I'm a film professor at Columbia. I think my opinion has a great deal of validity. <laughs> um. So, what else do you want to talk about with Persona? I mean, I think that we that we covered it. I think you we know, covered I, all. I think of we it. cracked it. We have ascend, ascended Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. We've staked our best picture this flag. Yeah, and um, and I will say that I've seen a few other Bergman movies. Um, not a lot, but I did love Scenes from a Marriage. I've seen a few other ones that I wasn't as hot on. This one made me so excited to see more movies mm-hmm. from his filmography because this is so good. It is. It was, it's so good. It is so good. I mean, I'm I'm kind of showing some of my confusion about some of the points in it, but I totally am okay in the end with Bergman saying it's supposed to be felt, not understood. And there's plenty in here to understand and to contemplate. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, it sort of reminds me of, um, what was the movie we just did? Eight and a half. 
Yeah, eight and a half. Mm -hmm. Like it's so wild and crazy, but then there are these very like deep and direct philosophical conversations that are being had. And I just, I loved all those here. And it, 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 again, it kind of like, you kind of earn the right to be totally sincere and philosophical when the rest of it is so fascinating. Um, And I think that's kind of partly a reflection of like this modernism, postmodernism, where we have this anxiety about like, the, the storytelling of the past and are we, are we just copying what they're doing or how can we make something new? Yeah. And Bergman is making something new. Oh yeah. Um, and it just kind of shoots out like a lightning bolt out of, you know, film history from at least from the movies I've seen. I'm not super well-versed in all the foreign films, which is partly why we're doing this, yeah. this little uh, yeah, series. For sure. Know? That's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah. And yeah, you're so right. Creating something new. I mean, the cinematography alone in this movie, mm-hmm. like you were saying, print them out. I, like I got to get a, a persona yeah. poster. Yeah, <laughs> I have to. I got to. I got to look to see what what screenshots. Um, you know, what do these things look like? Yep. Because I'd be all about it. So the next movie we're doing is in the mood for love. Uh, it, this tied for ninth on the sight and sound poll this year in the twenty well in the twenty twenty two directors poll uh, with persona. So. We will hit that one next. I've not seen it yet. Have you seen it? It's going to be a first for all me. Right. Another blind spot. Good times. Until then, find us on social media or wherever you listen. And for all the golden takes, head over to letterbox.com slash Mike Cavalieri. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash this. Thanks to WNZF and the illustrious Mark Gilliland for producing. Also, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening to Best Picture This, the faked illness of film criticism. <laughs> <laughs>